I know it is not a standard Christmas text, but I do believe you will see here um, where I'm going uh, when I read the passage. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come together in this place and worship your Son. That really is what Christmas is all about. It is honoring the Lord Jesus, the one who came to live the perfect life uh, and then to die the perfect death. You did that out of love in your hearts for us. You delighted to come. You were willing to come. You wanted to come. You are our only hope. And um, you did everything perfectly for us. And we now await your second coming. We await you to return for your church and bring us back home to yourself. But here in this place, just as a family this morning, lead us to honor you in our hearts. And we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 of Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 and 5. It reads, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I'm sure you see it there. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And so that is what Christmas is about. It is about honoring the Lord Jesus, God sending his Son into the world. But we do know, too, that there is a lot of other hubbub about Christmas as well, is there not? We're right there in the midst of it. Some of you all probably still have a great deal to do in preparation for tonight, maybe the gatherings that you're having or whatever takes place in your house or in your, with your family tomorrow. I had a song come to mind this week. Uh, it's one that I'm sure is played on your radio at some point during the last few days. Uh, and it is the Andy Williams song uh, that uh, it, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It was a song written in 1963. And here are some of the things that Andy Williams sang about that he says makes this season, Christmas, so nice. He says, with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you to be of good cheer, there'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories. I did find that a little bit odd. I mean, just a question. Did anybody do any of that as a child? Like, was that normal that you told ghost stories for Christmas? You know, maybe it was just for, I don't even think it rhymes. Yeah, it does too. And tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. I think we know something of what he's talking about, though, do we not? Even if we don't know what the scary ghost stories are all about. We do know that Christmas in America really is a cultural phenomenon. As soon as the Thanksgiving turkey gets cold until December the 25th, and maybe just for a few all, maybe a little bit after December 25th, the whole nation, it seems, is captured by the spirit of Christmas. And it's even explained that way, is it not? It's as if a strange spirit descends upon people and possesses them to be of good cheer for a short amount of time. And no doubt because of it all, there is a kind of pop culture magic in the air that captures hearts for a while. The stories that are told, elves, wintry villages, toys, 
always lots of snow, the songs that are sung, some of you all cannot wait for 96.1 to turn on the Christmas music, like, I think they do it in October now, like, just a little bit too much, but it does, it seems, put you in the mood for Christmas, and it all creates a sense of wonder, wonder, until it's time to take the tree down, climb back on the roof again for the lights, hopefully there's no ice and snow up there. And everything is packed away until the next wonderful time of the year rolls into town about 11 months from now. Wonder is good. And so is awe, a kind of magic. And I do hope the people in this church will experience wonder this Christmas. But isn't it better if that awe is based on something that is true and miraculous? not something that is just make-believe. On an ordinary night, just over 2,000 years ago, the God who had no beginning, the God who made the world that we live in, he was birthed into it. That's pretty wonderful. That's awe-inspiring. If he hadn't told the shepherds that night, no one would have even known that he was there. The God child, under the watchful eye of his heavenly father, he grew into the God man. And he was not here to simply explore the world that he spoke into existence. He was here to save us from the curse that this world was under. He truly was our only hope. The unseen God became seen, but nobody knew him. His creatures didn't recognize their maker. He was so ordinary. But that was the plan from before anything was ever made. It was written into the pages of history by a God who so loved the world. That's what we are to be captivated by when Christmas rolls around every year, but really it's something that we are to be captivated by for the whole year long. God loves us like this. That should grab our hearts this morning. And so my hope for you as we look at these couple of verses here in Galatians is to give you a few minutes of shelter from the most wonderful time of the year out there to reflect on some of the things that are truly wonderful in here with one another, but really in here in God's Word. Something real. Something powerful. Something only God could have conceived of to bring joy to the world. And no, I know that Galatians 4 is not a regular Christmas text. It has no wise men, it has no shepherds, it has no angels, but Christmas is here for us to observe. And it does have several truths that I want you to consider this morning as we think on Christmas. And the first truth is this. God had planned the perfect time for the first Christmas. 
Notice with me there in verse 4 what Paul says. He says, but the timing of Jesus' birth, he says that it was when the fullness of time had come. It was time. God, sovereign over every day that had ever existed, every sunrise, every sunset that had ever taken place, thousands of them had. Every breath that had ever taken place on earth by every being who had ever lived, he planned that this particular day would be the day for his divine son to come. This was it. I can only imagine what heaven was like on that day or in the days leading up to it. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Nothing like this would ever happen again. It was a one-time event. No doubt the angels would have been buzzing, wondering about all of this, that the king of kings would leave his position to come down here to be with poor parents in the town of Bethlehem. They arrived too late to even stay at the inn. They were all watching on with anticipation from up there in heaven. What was happening? What was he going to be like? You know what it's like to have a big day coming. Graduation is right around the corner. Maybe a marriage. The birth of a child. The first day of a new job. Waiting. Some major change is coming. You know what it's like to feel the butterflies inside. I do believe there was something like this in those majestic beings in heaven who Peter says they long to look into and understand the salvation of human beings. They love to watch on and they're in wonder and awe. And how could they not marvel that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was coming here and as a helpless baby? Why that way? They would have wondered. Think about this for a moment from a different perspective, from the human one. There were a lot of people in Bethlehem that night. A lot of people who were like us, coming and going, buying and selling, drinking and eating and laughing. And had we lived during that time in that part of the world, we might have stumbled upon the Ancient of Days on day one of his life here on earth. And we might have thought nothing of it, as I'm sure many of those people would have if they had stumbled upon him that night. And maybe just thought to ourselves that it seemed like such a bad place for a baby to be born to such young and poor parents during the census of Caesar. Like, what bad timing. How sad for them, we probably would have thought. But here we are told in this text, this was the perfect plan of God. He arranged everything just the way that he had wanted it for his son to come into the world. That's the first thing that Paul tells us here. It was the perfect time for Christmas. The time was full, the time was ripe, and he was coming into the world. Secondly, notice with me that the Son of God was born of a woman. The Son of God was born of a woman. 
And these details here that Paul begins to list, they're, they're important for us to understand because they will describe our need. They speak to our need. Why God did it the way that he did. And here Paul says he was born of a woman. And he's not specifically telling us here about the virgin birth, though that is important. But what Paul has in mind is the fact that the divine Son of God genuinely became a human being like me and you. He would have looked like me and you. He would have talked like us. Again, you would have rubbed shoulders with him at some point and thought nothing of it. He's just a really good man. The second person of the eternal trinity was joined to a real body in the womb of of Mary, like any other baby who's ever lived, except that the conception of this child did not come from a man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was formed in this woman by the hand of God himself. And so he had always existed as the Son of God. That was always who he was, but the life of the Son now became the soul or the spirit of this human being that was in this woman. And the way that God would save man from his sin was to send a perfect and sinless man to become a sacrifice for sinners, me and you. We desperately needed this to happen. He would be perfect and sinless because he was God. That's the divine aspect of it. There was no other way for him to be perfect. If he had been born of Adam, and in that line, me and you, he would have been a sinner and could not have died for our sins. So being the son of God, he was perfect. But he needed to be a man. And to be a man, he was truly born of a woman to become like us so that he could take our place. We needed this representative to stand in our place, to take the sentence of death from the judge, and only he could do this. Only he was qualified. Everything depended on him. And all the forces of darkness, you better believe it, all the forces of darkness were also watching on at this point. Angels looking down from heaven, wherever the demons were, they were also seeing what was taking place. And they knew something was happened that had to be stopped So you know something of that story. I'll read a piece of it tonight. But Matthew tells us the story of the wise men who came looking for this king so that they could worship him and they show up at the palace in Jerusalem and nobody else there knows anything about this king and it says that all of Jerusalem and King Herod, they were greatly troubled. They didn't look forward to this king. They saw him as a problem. And so Herod inspired by demonic forces, by the prince of darkness himself, wants all the babies killed up to two years old, try to stamp him out before he can really get going. So you better believe that the demonic forces, the hordes, were coming against him at this time. And then 30 years later, what happens? He leads Judas to betray Jesus and hand him over to the Roman authorities. But God, in all of his wisdom, he knew exactly what was going to take place and had arranged that his son would die as the perfect sacrifice. 
And so Judas and Satan, they only served the purposes of a sovereign God who had overseen it all. That this God-man would die for sinners, for me and for you. That's the second thing that Paul tells us here. Third, he also tells us the Son of God was born under the law. He says he was born of a woman and born under the law. Why is this important? God had given the law through Moses as a kind of magnifying glass over sin to show how sinful sin really is. It was so that people would really understand how desperately they really need a Savior. They would understand that I cannot genuinely be good. I'm sure there are a lot of people in this room that are much better than all sorts of other people that are out there. You are good in comparison to them. But compared to the law of God, as you really study it, look at it, you begin to understand how sinful you really are. So you might see in the law that thou shalt not kill. Well, I'm not a killer. But then Jesus comes along and he tells us a little bit more about the law. That even if you hate your brother, those are the seeds of murder. There is a kind of murder in your heart that if it could have its way in you and become full grown and bear the fruit that that sin really wants to have, that it would become murder if it would. You should not commit adultery. Well, I've just never done that. But Jesus says that if you even lust after a woman, you committed adultery with her in your heart. Every person in this room is a lawbreaker. And standing before God, not one of us is good. Not one. Matter of fact, that one came to Jesus that time and said, you know, good teacher, he called him. He said, why are you calling me good? There's only one that's good. And that's God himself. And so in a sense, he was confessing that Jesus was good and that he was God. He was the only good law keeper. You and I are not that. Rules, don't we hate them? We don't like rules. We don't like laws. We don't like to be told what to do. They chafe up against sin. That's what law does. It magnifies it, exposes it, it aggravates it. Sin is like a snake that's laying on the ground, minding its own business in a way, and then a child comes up and pokes it with a stick. That's what the law does. It pokes at sin, makes it begin to hiss and get aggravated. I remember when I was a kid, there was this sign on the post office lawn that said, stay off the grass. It's like, I've never even thought about the grass. I didn't think about walking on the grass, but now I am. That's what law does. I didn't know that that anti-authoritative, aggravating heart was even in there. It was just kind of lying in there, still until the law comes along and prods it and shows us what our hearts are really like. And every now and then, they do expose themselves. It's not always lying in there dormant, is it? We've talked about that in the recent weeks when we're looking at love, that love sometimes is, I mean, anger sometimes is easily inflamed. Some of you all will be gathered tonight with your family members, and somebody is going to say something, Right? And you're probably waiting on it. 
you're already, you've got your back up a little bit, as we used to say. Your back's up, you're ready, and they say it, and just like that, words come out. Or maybe just some little sarcastic, snarky comment that you've got just waiting in there. We're sinners. And then law comes along, pokes and prods at it, and shows us what it really is, like a magnifying glass. That's what the Old Testament law did. And that's why Paul here is talking about Jesus was born under the law. It exposes the sickness that is inside the human race. And one of the great evils of our age is that everybody is now told that all of their desires are valid and good. It's as if there is no more evil out there. The moral code has been abandoned. There are no laws, in a sense, anymore. The word evil, if it's ever even used, is reserved for the select few what the culture still thinks is unspeakable. But that unspeakable list is shrinking. No one now sees his need for a savior. We are just fine the way that we are. Not so, says God. His perfect law tells us what is good and it reveals the sin inside of our hearts. It exposes us. And there is no escape from it, from the condemnation that it brings to us. And again, that's why the human race is running from any type of law. They don't want condemnation. They want to say that everybody is just okay the way that they are. But God knows better. So what did Jesus do? Why is Paul talking here about the law? He came to live underneath that law and keep it perfectly for us. And so just as Jesus came to be our substitute in judgment, so Jesus came to be our substitute in obedience. He did both. We were forgiven in his death, but we are made righteous by his life, by what he lived. Every day for his 30-some-odd years here on earth, he never broke the law of God perfectly, always in obedience to his Father. Not just to prove that he could do it, and he could do it, but he did it for me and for you. He was the only perfect man to ever live. And when you believe in your heart of your great need for Jesus, and you believe that he truly went to the cross for you, for your sins, not just the sins of the whole world, when it becomes personal to you, and you begin to grieve over your sin, you begin to hate that it's even there, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are washed clean by his blood. And when you believe, you are also given his righteousness by the law that he kept perfectly in your place. It is transferred, his righteousness is transferred into your account so that when God looks at you and sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son because Jesus came and lived under the law. We needed that. Otherwise, we're lawbreakers before God. But in Christ, we are law keepers. Perfect, just like he is. Made perfect and ready to live with God forever in heavenly places. 
Look with me, verse 5. Paul sums up the work that Jesus came to do with one word. He says it's redeemed. Redeemed. He came to redeem those who were under the law. Christmas is about redemption. It was before my time, but I have heard of green stamps by S&H. How many of you all? Man, I wasn't expecting that. Because I was going to say, if you lived about 20 years before me, and all of you that raised your hands up, just you must have lived about 20 years before me. How many of you all have never even heard of green stamps? Yeah, kind of like me until I had. I've read about them. But these stamps were given out by a department store that you could come in and redeem for the value of certain items there. And I, I read that it was estimated that up to 80% of households in the 50s and 60s collected these stamps to redeem. To redeem means to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. God redeemed us. He gained us, regained us in exchange for the payment of his son. And the word here that Paul uses, it has the connotation of a slave being bought out of the slave market. But not to remain a slave, but to be bought and then set free. Which is exactly what has happened with us. Redeemed from the slave market of sin. So you and I, we were enslaved to sin, to do whatever it wants. And maybe it didn't feel like that, but that's just because your desires were in line with sin. Wanting to do the things that sin wanted you to do. Or maybe you battled against it, you know, but eventually you're just like, ah, what's the harm? But you were a slave to sin. And Jesus Christ came into the world, the freest man who had ever lived. He paid our debt so that we could be free like not just free on our own, out there like street children with no family name or home or identity. He didn't free us so that we could become orphans. That's not freedom. The Son of God bought us to make us true sons with Him. He goes out there into the slave market, pays our price, and then leads us home to be with him forever to enjoy the riches that only he deserves. But he says, now come. It's all yours. That's the redemption that he brings. And then he gives us that sonship or that family. See that there in the text. Paul says, adoption. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so what Christmas is all about is slaves to sons purchased into the family of God. Out there living as enemies, Christ comes to save us because God desires to have mercy on us. And he says, come home with me. And so here we are singing about merrymaking and eating and drinking and gladness and Santa and reindeer and Frosty and all his friends. 
That's what Christmas has become. And we all are, in a sense, in awe of the season. But when we look at a text like this, this should lead us to truly be in awe. That the God who exists outside of time stepped into it to come and save people like us who were in rebellion against him. That he loves us like that to intervene in the world that he made, that he could have scrapped. He'd done it almost once before when he sent the flood and saved eight people. But he vowed never to do that again. He had committed to saving this world that he had made, and it would be done by the coming of his son, who redeemed us and then adopted us into his family. Jesus walked into the devil's lair. He paid our price with his life. He then comes back from the dead and brings us home to his father. We can share with him what is his forever. True children of God. Not that fake sense that everybody's talking about. We're all children of God. Not in the sense like this, adopted into his family. That only comes by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's to become a child of God and to bear his image like his son does. This is how it starts, by putting faith in him. I don't know where everybody in this room is in relationship to Jesus Christ. But I hope this morning as you hear these words, that there is a sense of awe in you to think, God did this for me? How does he even know my name? Does God really know the way that I have lived over the past 20 years? Does he really know me? Yes, he does. And yet he loves you like this. So my hope today is that Christmas becomes personal to you, not just cultural. It's almost as if you could see this text just for yourself just for you. God did this for you so that you could enjoy what Christ deserves forever and ever with him. And you needed this more than anything else. So please do not ignore the redemption that your heart needs and the adoption into God's family that Jesus offers to you this morning. That is what Christmas is all about. Because we enjoy for a month, it seems, the cheap spirit of Christmas that has no basis. It is a fabrication of our culture to make ourselves feel better for a short time, like a month-long drug. When right here for the taking is the story of God to rescue a people by sheer grace. The Father's gift of His Son to everyone, everyone who would receive Him. And because Christmas is so keen on feelings, I want you to feel something this morning too. I want you to feel loved by God. Not simply because I say so, but that's what God's Word says. It tells you that you are loved by this God and seen by Him. And he was not obligated to give you this gift. He could have consigned every person here to eternal punishment that we deserve. 
But there is a love inside of our God that moved him to plan the most extravagant surprise that the world has ever known. Some of you have presents under the tree right now that you have wrapped. Something that you've planned. Maybe even for weeks and months you have thought about this. You can't wait, can you, until tonight or tomorrow morning when that person grabs hold of this particular gift and you have this anticipation waiting to see what the look on their face is like when they open up that present. How many of you all have something like that? Actually, don't. Don't raise your hands. It makes you bubble up with joy at the thought of them opening it up. Why does that excite you, boy? Love. A delight in the good of somebody else. And that only scratches at the surface of the love in our God who delighted to do your eternal good by sending his son to rescue you. And Jesus Christ is offered to you this morning. So my hope is that his love will move your heart to love him in return. And there is nothing better that can come to you this Christmas. And I don't mean simply a belief in the words that are here. Not just being able to regurgitate the truths that are found here, but to love Jesus Christ who has so loved you like this. And this love is a work that can only be done by the Spirit of God, who Paul says here in verse 6, the Spirit will lead us to cry out, Abba, Father. Is that in your heart? Is there a delight in the Heavenly Father in your heart, a love for Him? Because Paul says that only comes through God's Spirit. That is a miraculous, supernatural work of God. And if that is yours, I say to you this morning, Merry Christmas. You of all people, if you can say that, all people of the earth, you are most blessed if you can say, Abba, Father, this morning. Because your joy will not be taken or lost in about a week when the season ends because you have received God's So will you look on him this morning and love him and rejoice to know that you have been blessed by him with faith to see this son right here that in the fullness of time God sent forth into the world to be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us and adopt us into his family. There is nothing better than that. This is Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord is come, we are told. But the earth let us this morning receive our King. Let's pray together. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for this text of Scripture, and I trust it into your hands to use by the power of your Spirit to speak to hearts of your love. Christmas truly is about love, your love, perfect love, unstained by sin, love. 
a love that you choose to send to us in the person of your son who lived perfectly and then died perfectly in our place so that we can enjoy the love of our heavenly father forever and ever and ever. That is the essence, the substance, the middle, the heart of Christmas. And so may we, as a church this morning, receive that love. If there are hindrances to it in this room, I pray, God, that you will crush those hindrances and pour out your love into hearts so that the people here will be full to overflowing with Christ. Magnify your Son in us. Sin once ruled in us. We confess it, but now... We want Christ to rule in us. The King of kings and Lord of lords has come, not simply to stay as a baby. He came to grow up, live, die, now at the right hand of the Father. And Lord Jesus, you see everything that is taking place in this room today and in other houses of worship. And we pray, God, that what we have done here, what we have sung, what we have preached has been pleasing to you. Have our hearts melt them with your love and draw sinners to yourself. We trust all these things into your hands. And your hands are good and perfect. And we know that you are going to always do what is best. Do that in each of us. We ask it in Jesus' name.